Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chesley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Task force, time's up. President Trump suggests a June end, even as the U.S. death toll mounts. Disney's decline, shuttered parks, closed stores, and no cruises hits profits. And the secret spread. Did COVID-19 arrive sooner than we thought? We'll discuss. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move this Wednesday. Great to have you with us as always. We can't escape it. We'll continue to track the economic cost of the world's response to the virus today. But we'll also not forget the loss of life, as I mentioned there. And our hearts continue to go out to those who have all been impacted. But at the same time, we'll recognize the innovation that's being sparked by this crisis too, that's helping us to cope and will drive us forward in the future too. For now. Here in the United States, private sector employees cut more than 20 million jobs last month. That is the worst month in history of the ADP private sector survey. It's just a prelude to the Friday's job numbers, those non-farm payrolls, where we could see an unemployment rate in the United States as high as 20%. And whatever number that is, as tragic as it is, I think it underestimates the extent of the job destruction here in the United States. It's something that we've watched all around the world. More firms too here in the US adding to those uh, tolls of lost jobs. Home rental firm Airbnb, one of the latest cutting 25% of its staff and Qatar Airways warning too of substantial job cuts. The key to all of this is how quickly economies recover and then those jobs come back. Critical and we'll discuss this in the show. For now, as you can see from futures, Markets and investors appear more optimistic, I think, than companies are willing to be, at least in their forecasts. Take a look at what we're seeing in European markets as well. Data on the services sector in Italy and Spain make pretty awful reading. The EU, meanwhile, has warned that we could see a recession of historic proportions. Again, the response and perhaps more response needed around the world. Stocks. Meanwhile, in Asia ended higher. The spending data from China caught my eye. Consumers spent 60% less cash on travel during this year's Labor Day holiday than they did that ended yesterday than they did this time last year. Opening up doesn't necessarily mean spending and traveling. And I think there's a lesson in there for other nations too. Let's get to the drivers. The White House is moving to wind down its coronavirus task force, possibly by Memorial Day, less than three weeks from now. Although the number of coronavirus deaths here in the United States continue to climb, now topping 71,000 people. The president is moving towards a message of economic revival. 
Do you believe that's the reality we're facing, that, that lives will be lost to reopen the country? It's possible there will be some because you won't be locked into an apartment or a, or a house or whatever it is. But at the same time, we're going to practice social distancing. We're going to be washing hands. We're going to be doing a lot of the things that we've learned to do over the last period of time. And we have to get our country back. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, when I mentioned that we've seen 20 million plus people losing their jobs, and then I mentioned 70,000 people plus who've, who've lost their lives, the, the trade-off, and it is that that we're talking about here, I think is, is crystallized. I understand to some degree the economic desire to reopen economies, but the idea that we don't have a task force anymore on top of the health crisis is astonishing to me. You know, and, and top of mind for the president clearly are these jobs numbers. I mean, he said it in that interview, people are losing their jobs. We've got to get it back. And that's what we're going to be doing. The risk here, of course, though, is without proven therapeutics, without widespread per capita testing, uh, without measures in place in workforces that we know work uh, for the spread of, of the disease, and without a vaccine, uh, a second wave could be really deadly if you open things up and then this fall we end up having a, a, a pandemic crash again, right? So I think you risk getting a normal economy again if you don't uh, reopen in exactly the right way. And it would seem as though a pandemic task force, you know, maybe even broadened out for, for more with more economists could be exactly the kind of place to be taking a, a, a very federal approach to doing this. But the president, I mean, these numbers are so shocking and depression era. And he is looking at that trade off of paychecks. And that seems to be what the what the what is top of mind for this president right now. You mentioned so many great points. My fear here is that our behavior is going to dictate how bad a potential second wave would be. Do we keep to the social distancing? The right. idea of sending a message to people that, hey, we've done this now, we're through the worst, we're over it, we don't need to focus in the same way, scares me, even if I agree that we do need to have a rebooting of the economy task force that looks at what the future looks like here too. To your point, regaining these jobs is yeah. important, but not the cost of life. And the, the travel and leisure jobs, I mean, these are the kinds of jobs that are going to be hard to come right. back in the very near term, right? But there could be, and I don't know what the percentage is because there's no playbook for this, Julia, but there could be millions and millions of jobs that come back right away when there is a safe and healthy reopening of the economy and the pandemic um, is, is behind us, quite frankly. There's still a lot of work to be done in the near term. I, one of the things I think is fascinating is, is the, the view from Washington this week. The president began the week as a wartime president fighting an invisible enemy underneath the dome of, of the Lincoln Memorial, admitting that there would be more than 60,000 lives lost to this and what a tragedy it was. And then within just 48 hours, um, sort of switching gears and looking as though he's ready to focus on the revival of the, of the economy and less attention on the lives that could potentially, more lives that could be lost because of that revival of the economy. It's a, it's a, it's a definitive pivot, I think, a, a pivot from the White House this week. And tragedy on all sides, tragedy in terms of the health crisis, tragedy yes. in terms of job losses and the number of people that we're talking about here. I mean, to your point and to go full circle, Christine, we could be looking at approaching depression era unemployment in the United think, States. And that probably underestimates the impact on the jobs market. 
I absolutely agree with you on that. And I also think that we're all penciling in numbers and doing the math with what we know from jobless claims and what we know about the American labor market. Uh, but the pain and suffering of every single one of those data points, you know, people who don't know how long, you know, some people haven't even gotten their first unemployment check yet, right? And they've had two months they've had to pay rent, April uh, and May. So this has been very trying for the American people. And not, it's, it's a health crisis and a kitchen table economics crisis at the same time, which makes it just that much more, um, you know, more unbearable. I'll say two quick things. Until we have an education fix here, I don't think that you can really go back to normal in the American workplace until our kids are going back to school or we know because you parents are parents are at home with the teachers teaching their kids remotely now that's a very big uh, very big part of this thing I think and again are people going to feel safe going out and venturing into the you know the pre-march kind of economic activity that they had not unless they are really sure that they're not going to catch this virus Yes, 70% of the U.S. economy consumption, and it is the biggest nation in the world. So what happens here matters for the whole world. Yeah. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. Now to a company that well and truly has been in the firing line as far as COVID-19 is concerned, Disney. They said they'll reopen their Shanghai theme park next Monday, just as the cost of having shuttered parks worldwide becomes clear. Profit at the company was down 91% in the last quarter. The parks division cost it $1 billion in lost revenues. Brian Stelter joins us now on this story. Brian, Disney is a company that's built on engagement, being present, whether it's theme parks, whether it's in stores. We'll put the streaming part aside here. Everything about their business, the major parts of their business is hit by a pandemic. Right. That's why Disney is so exposed yeah. uh, to the to the ravages of this pandemic, even more than other media companies. And what we heard from Disney's leaders uh, on their earnings call, it expresses how much uncertainty there is throughout uh, the American society and throughout the world. Disney is a microcosm of what so many hundreds and thousands of companies are going through. When can they reopen the theme parks? And if they reopen theme parks, will anybody get on a plane to go there? And then if they open the parks, and there's an outbreak, then at what cost have they have they reopened their business? And how much uh, how much of a disaster would that be for a perceptual uh, for a perceptual way and in a cost of lives if there is an outbreak at one of their parks? Those are the kinds of issues Disney is grappling with, and that's why they provided basically no projections for the foreseeable future. Yeah, large crowds in really small places, ultimately. And I, I wasn't even thinking that, but you're so right. The liability risk here for, for customers, but also for workers, as many companies already on the front lines have faced here. Um, Brian, talk to me about some of the silver linings here, which is, of course, while many of us are sitting at home, we are watching more movies and the streaming service and the millions of people that are now tapping into um, Disney Plus are way past initial expectations millions more. and that's really the only the only good news disney can share right now it is that uh in mid-march in late march when everyone when everything basically shut down in, in north america and other parts of the kind of the world disney plus subscriptions uh went on a huge tear uh you know more than 10 million people signed up in a matter of weeks now disney's over 54 million subscriptions for disney plus that's an incredible amount of growth in just a few months for this new streaming service so it is kind of a predicted uh, that, yes, people are going to be signing up for this service because they're stuck at home. But that's the one bit of good news for Disney. Then the question becomes, how are they going to make shows for Disney Plus 
if everything is shut down and they can't produce television and films. Uh, Netflix and other studios are working on solutions for that. Disney also working on that, trying to figure out ways to produce TV shows and movies in a way that is relatively safe. But Julia, this is all about risk calculation, right? All of this is about how much risk are individuals willing to take and how much are companies willing to take. And right now, I think people's appetite for risk, for example, going and making a television show and putting 100 people together in a studio, the, the level of the appetite of risk is very low. People don't want to take those risks. Yeah, it's such a great point. This is when a library of content becomes so important. But um, to finish on a sort of fairy tale ish ending, Bob Iger, of course, said, look, we've been through a lot. This company has been through a lot and it's seen some bad times and we will survive this. But to your point, we just don't know when it all ends. But when? Brian yeah. Stelter. Yeah. Thank you so much. And um, great to see you, Brian. All right, moving on now to Airbnb, laying off 25% of its workers as the travel industry continues to collapse. In the wake of the virus, the short-term rental company is laying off almost 2,000 people. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Claire, this company for me cuts to the heart of the challenges with the gig economy. It provided us with a level of freedom, but now it cuts to the heart of our fears. Do we want to be going into someone else's home that we don't know or getting into a car with someone we don't know? And it's proving a real challenge for Airbnb. Absolutely, Julia. This was a, a pretty heartfelt letter that was sent from the CEO, mm. Brian Chesky, to, to employees yesterday. He said uh, this is the, the most harrowing crisis uh, of our lifetime. He said that the problem is, is that they're facing two key uncertainties. One, that they don't know when travel will return. And secondly, they don't know what it's going to look like when it does. So, so given that, the company is now refocusing on its core business, trying to support its host community, the people who put their homes and rooms and, uh, and various other uh, accommodation up for rental on Airbnb. They had been sort of diversifying, expanding into a full service travel company with things like transportation, experiences, adventures, uh, even you know uh, into hotels. Uh, all of that is either being cut back or suspended uh, as they refocus their operations. They say that revenue this year is going to be about half uh, of what it is. Uh, of what it was last year. So, so given that the 25% cut is happening fast for people in the US and Canada, the last day will be this coming Monday, May 11th, and it's happening around the world in all teams, 24 countries in different ways, do they? But, but given that there is, there is a slight glimmer of hope as people are, uh, sort of lockdowns are easing, particularly in parts of Europe. The CEO, Brian Chesky, told the Financial Times that they are starting to see a pickup in bookings. I think there is some sense of, of pent up demand here. People are desperate to, to have a getaway throughout all of this as these restrictions ease, but still a, a very bleak moment for the company, which was, of course, supposed to go public this year. Yeah, I saw that in Denmark and the Netherlands, but people tend to stay mm -hmm. at home, which I think is part of the reality. All of these things are tied cruise ships as well. I mean, we joke in the past about floating Petri dishes, and I think COVID-19 has been a stark reality, the first to get hit and perhaps the last to recover given the circumstances. And we've seen the challenges for ones like Norwegian just in the last 24 hours. It's an existential crisis. Yeah, for the cruise line studio, it's not just the travel restrictions, it's not just the, the dramatic slump in demand. They are actually under a no-sale order from the CDC, a Norwegian warning in a, uh, in, a, in a filing this week that they might not be able to stay in business given uh, what, what's been going on. They say that they're desperately trying to raise cash through private debt offerings. They've raised about 400 million. They've tried, they're trying to, to raise more. They've yeah, followed about 20% of their staff. And meanwhile, Carnival Cruises says that they plan to, to, to restart sailing in a very phased, very slow manner uh, from August 1st. I think it remains to be seen how much demand there will be for that. 
Yeah, and we shall have to wait and see. So much uncertainty. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. To the health crisis now, and a new genetic study indicates that COVID-19 spread around the world much earlier than we first thought. A group of British researchers say the virus is changing, but not necessarily becoming more infectious or worse. CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen joins me now. Elizabeth, my read on this was slightly different, I have to say. There were hopes from doctors that perhaps this had been secretly spreading months and months earlier and perhaps we might have built up greater immunity. When I look at the details of this, December's early, but it's not that early. And Julia, many people were hopeful right along yeah. with you. You know, please, let's look at the genetic material and maybe we'll find that this was circulating throughout the fall in Europe, in the U.S., and there are many of us who are immune, but that's not how it turned out. This really confirms what we already know, which was that this appears to have been circulating before official groups like the U.S. Centers for Disease Control uh, here in the United States, before they officially knew it. But it wasn't, it doesn't show that it was circulating, like, let's say, back in September. It was circulating maybe in the very end of 2019, early 2020. And the mutating part is important because I know we say the word mutate and we immediately think of some horror film. The reality is, is that viruses mutate. That is what they do. If you were to have coronavirus and give it to me, and then we were to look at the genetic material from you and from me, it would look different even though you gave it to me. There are little teeny tiny changes even when it goes from person to person. That is not supposed to be some big scary thing. That is the reality. It doesn't mean it's more infectious. It doesn't really mean anything. It just means that there are these little changes. This is so important because, again, when I when I read this and I read one of the quotes from the research analysts in this and they said the virus is changing, I immediately thought, oh, wow, what does this mean for all our hopes and all the progress that's being made towards finding a vaccine? Elizabeth, what can you tell us about that? I was speaking with a vaccine expert today and he said, look, a vaccine will still work. These little mutations from person to person to person don't matter for a vaccine. If they were huge differences, so much that you would say that we now have two types of coronavirus, yes, that would matter. But that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing small differences and so a vaccine would still work. And it's important to know this is a coronavirus. We know coronaviruses. Of course, this one, you know, there are differences from coronavirus to coronaviruses, but they tend to be stable. So they do little changes, not big changes. And a vaccine can deal with little changes. This is so important. So don't jump to conclusions when you see that a virus right. is changing or mutating. It's the degree of mutation that matters. Elizabeth Cohen, as always, exactly. fantastic to have you with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. To Samsung now, and a major announcement from the company, Lee Jae-yong, the heir of the South Korean conglomerate, says he will not hand management control over to his children. Samsung was founded by Lee's grandfather and run by his father until 2014. Lee also apologized for Samsung's executive's conduct that led to convictions for bribery and union busting. So a clean break for the family and the company, it seems. Now, coming in on a break, we'll be back after this, but uh, coming up, a global pandemic requires global solutions. The Atlantic Council's Jamie Metzl tells me why we all need to work together and how we go about it. And later in the show, in his first interview with First Move, the CEO of IBM, new man Arvind Krishna, pledges every business can make about working from home. That's next. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, keeping an eye on U.S. stock markets this morning. And we are on track for a higher open in what is a very busy day for earnings. GM shares are moving higher pre-market. The company posted a nearly $300 million Q1 profit, a stark contrast if you compare to Ford's $2 billion loss. Although GM burned through $900 million in cash and revenue fell some 6%, GM says it aims to reopen U.S. plants on May the 18th. So a positive reopening story there, key. Shares of Burger Chain Wendy's are set to rally too. It says consumer demand has bounced back this month despite widespread beef shortages. And uh, meatless burger firm Beyond Meat reporting a more than 140% sales rise. They're up almost 10% pre-market. That company, of course, not struggling from uh, meat supply shortages at all. With tension between China and the United States over the coronavirus outbreak escalating, one thing is clear. In the face of a common threat, the world is for now divided, but a new movement aims to change all that. An initiative called One Shared World launches today with a declaration of interdependence. The group brings together people from 35 different countries. It's calling on world leaders to work together to find global solutions to what are global problems. We're all in this together. The founder is Jamie Metzl, who has worked for the U.S. government, the National Security Council and the United Nations and is an advisor to the World Health Organization. He's also a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and joins me now. Jamie, nothing is more important than recognizing at this moment, particularly in the face of COVID-19, that our behavior impacts everyone else. And it's not a national story. It's a global story. Is that why now is the time? That's exactly right, Julia. If this pandemic is teaching us anything with all of the sorrow and all of the sadness, it's that we're one common humanity. The virus isn't differentiating between us. And the only way that we're going to overcome this challenge is together. Building walls isn't going to do it. We have to come together to save ourselves. It's a declaration of interdependence. You want people to sign up and say, look, I, I agree that we are all in this together, whatever nationality. I know the Chinese languages are also included here as well, which is important. But then what? What's the action part of this? Yeah, so you're, you're exactly right. We want everyone to go to our site, oneshared.world, and sign the Pledge of Interdependence because... Even here in the United States, we're suffering terribly. But if things get better over the summer and this virus goes to sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia and grows and mutates, then it's just going to come back here in the fall and it's going to be much worse for us. So our health, our well-being resides in others. But this isn't just about lofty declarations. We're immediately pivoting. We're announcing today the launch of two campaigns, one for global public health, which is co-chaired by the dean of the Harvard School of Public Health, Michelle Williams, and one to address the emergency needs of the most vulnerable populations of the world, particularly in the Southern Hemisphere as the brunt of this pandemic shifts from North to South. And that's being co-chaired by uh, Ambassador Rick Barton. So we're moving fast. It's about principles, but once we have this common vocabulary, once we accept our interdependence, then we have to apply those principles to drive real change in the world. And you've drawn really high level attention. I believe you've also caught the notice of 
places like the Vatican, for example, which I think is really interesting. But I read your CV for a reason, because I wonder whether you're suggesting at this stage that ordinary people have to be part of this movement, because institutions that you've worked for, government, uh, the World Health Organization, National Security Councils, there's been an institutional failure here to respond at a global level. It's painful to say this, but our governments have collectively failed us. They didn't prevent this totally preventable crisis. And the reason for this failure is that they've done the job we've hired them to do. We've asked our government leaders to defend our national interests. And they did a great job in 1945, some really thoughtful leaders creating wonderful institutions like the United Nations that are still, however, Uh, funded and largely controlled by states. And the big problem that we have is that the the challenges we face are global, whether it's deadly pandemics, climate change, ecosystem destruction, and everything else, but our responses are national. So there's a collective action problem. And the way that we're looking to fix that is by creating a global social movement and political force of the common interests of humanity. Everybody on earth wants there to be a a public health infrastructure that can save us. Everyone on earth wants us to prevent the collapse of our ocean ecosystems and everything else, but we can't do it because we're not organized to do it. And that's the problem we're trying to fix. Jamie, you said 1945, it's a very interesting time, but the United States led the world order up until this point. And the tone from the United States is, far more domestic focused, many nations around the world similar for their own reasons, many of them economic at this moment. Who leads this going forward? And if we tie in the tensions between the two largest nations in the world, the United States and China, how do they come together over this when actually they're at diametrically opposed positions at this moment over how this started? Yeah, it's a really essential question, Julie. If this was 1941, we would just be able to say, oh, we have Franklin Roosevelt, we have Winston Churchill, and our strategy is just to support them. But because we don't have those leaders, we have to divide that job among everybody. Everybody has to has to play a role. And we, a united global citizenry, need to say, this is just not okay. It's not okay uh, for our government leaders to drive us toward unnecessary conflict. That doesn't mean we we have to do sing kumbaya, and we can actually ask some really tough questions. We can ask tough questions, for example, about the origins of this outbreak. We can ask why the United States was so massively unprepared. Uh, This doesn't mean we have to lie about things or obfuscate, but it means that we have a common interest as humans from all countries, and that's why We've translated uh, our declaration and our pledge into so many languages. We all have a common interest because I'm here in New York. We're suffering here just like the people in Wuhan are suffering. We're all around the world suffering from the same issues and the same challenges, and we need to all come together to solve them. You have to separate people and you have to separate leadership, I think, here. And at the heart of this is trust. Jamie, you created Waves by saying... You actually believe that this virus originated in a lab in Wuhan. It was not meant to happen. It was probably an accident, but it was released. We need to understand the origins of this to 
understand how we tackle it and how we prevent it ever happening again. But is the more important part of this for now, at least, the cover up, the alleged cover up and the lack of information sharing? Because none of this works if we don't trust each other. Yeah, as I said, we, we, we don't need to be blind. We actually can't be blind. If a plane crashed, we wouldn't say, oh, we shouldn't ask why the plane crashed. And this plane crashed. That's what this pandemic represents. This is a totally preventable experience. And there were lots of reasons why it crashed. But the first one was this outbreak. And I certainly think it's most likely this was an accidental um, leak from the, uh, one of the Wuhan Virology Institutes. Whether it was or it wasn't, I think everybody agrees, including the Chinese government, that there was a massive cover-up, particularly in the early stages of the outbreak, which were critical. I think everybody agrees that the United States uh, failed. So we have to ask those questions. We have to do a honest, to make an honest analysis of what are the real problems we face. And then on that basis, we can come together and solve those problems. And more generally, that's the issue. Our world is not organized in the right way that will allow us to solve our biggest problems. If we want to do that, we have to think about organizing ourselves in a different way. And that's why so many citizens from every country in the world are coming together to do that. Organization, coordination, truth, honesty, and asking questions. We'll do that. We'll try to do that on this show. Jamie, great to have you with us. Jamie Metzl, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council. Good luck with the sign-ups today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Julia. Thank you. The market opens next. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Julia Chasley and U.S. markets are open for trading this Wednesday morning and we're in the green. We're rising, as you can see, for the third straight session. That continues to belie the underlying data that we see for the past month. In particular, the jobs numbers remain grim. A new survey showing U.S. private payrolls falling by more than 20 million people last month. As I mentioned before, my big fear here is that the unemployment numbers that we're going to see on Friday simply don't tell the complete story. Let me just give you an example. The Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago says real unemployment in the United States could be as high as 35 percent, much worse than many estimates suggest because it says the traditional methods of measuring the jobless rate don't include things like workers on unpaid leave, people unable to search for work during lockdowns. It doesn't give you a full picture of um, what people are suffering at this moment. Meanwhile, in the, uh, an interview with our Richard Quest, former World Bank President Jim Yong King urging countries to invest in the public health response to this crisis. We can look at the economics, but we have to look at the health too. We've learned so much from China, from New Zealand, from Australia, from Spain and Italy. We know a lot about how this virus behaves. You know, I was born in Korea and I I called the Korea CDC, the Centers for Disease Control of Korea, relatively early on, probably seven weeks ago, uh, to get an understanding of what this virus is doing. And at this point, it's really quite predictable in the sense that it's not changing, it's not going away with warm weather. Uh, and unless we get after the virus, aggressively chase the virus, 
we're only going to get so far. And I think what we've learned is that even with very strict social distancing measures, you can only get to a flattening of the curve. You can't make that curve go down. The big problem, Richard, is we're we're using bazookas on fiscal and monetary policy. You've heard you we've talked about this uh, uh, in so many different settings. Why is it that we have bazookas for fiscal and monetary policy and the public health community is forced to fight with squirt guns? We are not investing enough. And it makes no sense because the, fisc the, the, the economic problem is the result of the public health problem. We need to invest in the public health response. And there is not a single country other than the Asian countries, Australia, New Zealand, the ones who've gotten it under control, who are investing enough. This is the most important message. We've got to invest, and we've got to invest right now. Such a critical point. Kim also said without massive tests, contact tracing and quarantine measures, the U.S. is not expected to get out of the lockdown. And yet states are working their way out of it. So Lisa Levine is the chief strategist at BNY Mellon Investment Management. Alicia, great to have you with us as always. You were listening to that, I'm sure. And he was saying, look, the fiscal policy has been great. And I think we're seeing that reflected in financial markets. At the same time, he's really concerned about the lack of health policy response. Why are markets so confident, Alicia, when we don't see the follow through on the health side? And that's at the core. Look, that is that is the great question of the last few weeks. In a sense, investors are really faced with a dilemma because the fundamentals really don't support markets moving much higher from here. And even right now, at these levels, you know, the S&P is really pricing in a V-shaped recovery, a pretty robust recovery beginning in the second half. On the other hand, you do have the bazooka from the Fed. And so the question is, do you fight the Fed or do you fight the fundamentals? And I think there's not a lot of conviction on either side. And so we're just in a very interesting place. It is the case that the US is opening up despite not having vanquished the virus. That is very true. And the unspoken message is, is that we all have to live with it. And we have to learn to manage it and manage our actions while we open up the economy. It's such a great point. Do you fight the Fed or do you fight the fundamentals? Based on where we're lying now, are you saying we're at that point where we're, we've taken as much as we can from the Federal Reserve and the cash that we've got? We're looking at the fundamentals and going, OK, they're going to be pretty bad. And actually, we can't tell, given what companies aren't telling us about the future, what the future looks like. Yeah, you know, this is a hard one because fighting the Fed as we learned from the last financial crisis, was not a great idea. And that's part of the reason that, you know, active managers underperformed the indices because there was no volatility and there was no way to have an edge. And we gave out door prizes for everything, companies that were failing and companies that were really more solid. And so you're faced with the same question again. And particularly as the Fed goes down the capital structure, so going into high yield, it does suggest that you're supporting markets everywhere. And that's a fact, which is why the left tail risk really has gone. And we do think that if there is a sell-off from here, your support levels really are in the 2400 and 2500 range. We just don't see retesting the lows of March. But it, it's, it's a great question. I think the unemployment issue that you brought up earlier in this segment is the real one because we're not really counting anybody. And if you think about the PPP money, 
that's meant to support businesses and their workers for eight weeks. What happens at the end of eight weeks when there's no business left because there's no demand left? And those are the numbers that we're really going to see, I think, coming into July and August. And another crucial question, what does recovery even look like at this stage when I was just mentioning there up to 35% potentially of people have seen some form of reduced salary, reduced hours, job losses in its entirety. And if we're continuing to social distance, if the health risk is still remaining with us, um, what kind of recovery are we looking at here? To your point, we're priced for perfection and this won't be a V-shaped recovery. Yeah, I mean, look, the recovery is going to be a rolling recovery. The way our Mm -hmm. lockdowns were rolling, you know, we have a federalist system each state decides, and even the counties are deciding. So we have rolling, we had rolling lockdowns, and we're going to have rolling openings. Some states are opening up tattoo parlors or nail salons, and others are simply allowing construction to start again, and lawn care. So it's very different. I think the lesson that many firms have learned from this is they can do okay with less labor, and they can do okay with less real estate. So I think those are really areas to watch out for going forward. I think the investment in healthcare is going to be huge going forward. And I think workers' rights and some notion of a universal base of income and a higher minimum wage are definitely in the cards going forward. Yes, more power to the workers perhaps, but less of them working overall. Alicia I Levine. think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. I agree yeah. with you. Alicia Levine, thank you so much and stay well, please. Thanks, Thanks, Julia. Great to see you. Likewise. All right, coming up after the break, in his first interview on First Move as CEO, IBM's Arvind Krishna tells me how COVID-19 will speed up the digital transformation of society and what he's doing to face up to these challenges. IBM's new CEO says building resilience is key for businesses in the face of COVID-19. He also predicts a dramatic acceleration in digital transformation of both business and of society. Arvind Krishna spoke at IBM's Think 2020 conference, which went fully digital in just six weeks and saw attendance triple on last year to some 90,000 people. That tells you something. We spoke ahead of his opening keynote address where he said the hybrid cloud and artificial intelligence are the two dominant forces that will thrive. The world is only about 20% of its way into its journey on cloud. It would have likely taken five to 10 years to complete that journey. I believe that this crisis is going to accelerate that by a number of years. If I look at AI, we're only 4% of our way into the journey on AI. AI will unlock, we estimate, $16 trillion of productivity. Well, as we unlock that, and you're only 4% in, I think that we are all going to become AI enterprises. And this particular crisis, I think, will accelerate that again by a number of years. Those both point to incredible growth. The cloud market, we all estimate, is worth $1.2 trillion. That's a mixture of products and services. So, so unlocking that potential, unlocking the hundreds of billions that are in there, and then really using all of that to improve how we all deliver services to our clients, 
I think is what this crisis is going to accelerate. This is astonishing. 4% in terms of artificial intelligence. If we fast forward, let's say three years, because it's so tough to predict what the new normal looks like, but in three years' time, can you give us a sense of where you see that percentage? I, so a, a quick history lesson. Many, many <laughs> technologies, once they begin to get embraced, within a decade, they reach 100%. You know, when we look at smartphones or you look at the internet, internet was 95, by 2005, I think it had reached reasonable penetrations, up in the 70, 80%. So if I say that in 10 years, we're going to get to 100%, that means the 4% now is going to get well into double digits. I would guess, you said two to three years, somewhere in the 20 to 30% range may be appropriate for what we can unlock. And then it's going to keep accelerating from then on in terms of adoption. We also talked about what recovery from this situation looks like. We agreed it's incredibly hard to predict, but Arvind said that recovery, when it comes, will be patchwork. So, so Julia, I'm not an economist, so I'm a not going ball. to try to have a crystal ball <laughs> on this topic. <laughs> but if we talk and think in terms of people talk about V-shaped and U-shaped, etc., one thing is clear that as we think about the impact on some industries is going to be a lot more than on others. I mean, what's happening in travel, tourism, hospitality is evident before our eyes. Those are going to take a while to recover. That's quite clear. If I look on the other side, if I look at contactless payments, if I look at banking, I look at healthcare, I look at telecom, those are actually accelerating slightly as opposed to hurting. So you kind of got uh, two different uh, views of two different industries. And then as we look upon, then uh, you try to blend them in along with the impact on people and return to the workplace. I think that the return to workplace is definitely going to go in waves. My hope is that governments can help in giving us all some common standards. Otherwise, we may come back to work, but a client we call on has a different standard. That will ca cause a lot of mayhem out there because of the different standards. So we think that return to work, we're going to hopefully start soon in a few weeks of some coming back, but we believe it'll go in waves. In the short term at least, working from home for many of us is the new reality. And IBM has recognized that with an employee work from home pledge. It's incredibly important. Arvind told me there is a single overriding priority here. I said I was committed to their safety. That yeah. comes together with the fact that we put 95% of them to work from home. We actually managed to get that done literally within a day or two in every country once the regulations and the health authorities began to clamp down. We have about uh, 8,000 workers who are essential who work at manufacturing sites and data centers. We are committed to their safety, whether it's PPE, whether it's the protocols for how they work, whether it's the protocols for how they isolate, that is essential. But when I talk about that, there is one that really came up that touches my heart. And I think we put it out, I put it out, I know, on my LinkedIn, which is our work from home pledge. Uh, some of our consultants and leaders in that, uh, in that practice were discussing with each other, and this was a few weeks into, we're all doing video calls, we're all from home. And this pledge they made about a work from home pledge 
because it touches on your mental state, not just your physical state. Right. And we talk about the fact that just because we are at home, we shouldn't be working all the time. You know, it's okay to be video sensitive. There may be things happening in the background we don't want to expose to video. It may be okay to say, look, I need 30 minutes in the middle of the day to cater to a child or a pet or a parent because we are at home and schooling is stopped and other things are happening. It's okay to say, look, I'm not available all of the time. Just because I'm home, I'm not available from four in the morning to midnight. And so how do we work around these protocols, come to really a new normal of how we work with each other is essential. And to have not just sensitivity, but real consideration and empathy for each other as we work together, but remotely. Give me goosebumps. Agree. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. But coming up, from working at home to reading at home, we'll bring you a different kind of story to brighten up your day. And it's all in a good cause. Stay with us. Hey, look, a duck. It's not a duck. That's a rabbit. <laughs> yeah, can you turn the page? <laughs> Some excellent storytelling going on there. Of course, that was Megan, the Duchess of Sussex, and baby Archie marking his first birthday with a book called Duck Rabbit. It was a video to raise funds for Save the Children. They, of course, now live in California after Meghan and Prince Harry stepped down as senior members of the royal family. He's very cute. There were birthday messages from the other side of the Atlantic, too. This photo, taken at Archie's christening last July, was shared by Kensington Palace. And Prince Charles shared this picture, too. A touching personal moment from the same day. Happy birthday from First Move, Archie. And before we leave you, something to brighten up your day too is National Nurses Week gets underway. One couple in Chicago showed their appreciation by no donating 2,500 meals to nurses at their city hospital. It just shows a little extra love and appreciation can go a really long way. They provided over 2,500 meals for breakfast, lunch and dinner. And so the nurses really appreciate that, especially during these times. We're very happy to be able to show the nurses at UI Health how much we appreciate them during really all the times of their work, but especially during this crisis and especially during National Nurses Week. To our healthcare heroes all around the world, as always, we thank you. Thank you for watching the show. I'm Julia Chastley. Stay safe and I'll see you tomorrow. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.